0: And welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast that asks Colgate University community members 13 questions. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I am so excited to welcome to the podcast Professor of Art, Elizabeth Marlowe. We are going to discuss what is going on at museums around the world with respect to looted antiquities and widespread concerns of stolen artifacts on display. At Colgate, Marlowe is also the director of the program in museum studies and chair of the art department. Marlowe specializes in ancient art, late antiquity, the city of Rome, Roman imperial monuments, museum studies, critical museum theory, decolonizing museums, the art market, cultural property, and antiquities looting and repatriation. Marlowe earned her bachelor's degrees from Smith College and Cambridge University and her master's and Ph.D. from Columbia University. She's regularly quoted by national media outlets on the subject of looted antiquities and has appeared in the pages of The New York Times, The Smithsonian Magazine, Hyperallergic, and many more. Professor Marlowe, welcome to 13. Thanks so much
1: for having me, Dan.
0: I'm so excited to have this chat with you today. Me too. All right, cool. So I think it's always good to start at the beginning. And I love there's a line in your bio that says, my recent work engages more with museum practices than with academic ones. I'm fascinated by how museums present objects in their collections, particularly the messy ones, the ancient ones that may have been looted the ones that other people consider their own cultural property and want back, and the ones that scholars think might be forgeries. So how did you get interested in this subject of museum ethics and um, I guess the, the history of these collections that are on display?
1: Yeah, that is an interesting question. It it really um, – it, it's unusual that this is the case, but I can say that I really did have sort of a single moment where – uh, the scales fell from my eyes or <laughs> people know the matrix reference where I like took the red pill and suddenly saw everything <laughs> in a new light. I was working on turning my dissertation into a book, which is what's expected of a young starting out professor. Um, and I was looking into the provenance history of a particular statue that I was writing about. That is to say, I was trying to figure out the whole history of this statue from the time that it was discovered to the present day. And what I was really interested in was this story that was repeated in all the publications about this statue that said it had been found at a particular location in the city of Rome in a military barracks, an ancient military barracks, which was right on the edge of the city. That fine spot information appeared every time this statue was published anywhere. I had repeated that in my own dissertation and in various other contexts. But when I was going to turn the dissertation into a book, I thought, eh, I better look up, where does that story come from? How do we know that? Where is it documented, this moment of discovery of the statue? And so I started digging into... The just the history of that little data point that this was found at that particular location. And what I very quickly discovered is that that story – um, came from a very unreliable source. It came from someone who was trying to sell the statue uh, <laughs> long after it had supposedly been found in the ground and after it had been taken out of Italy. Uh, it didn't have the export papers it should have had at the time. So the the story about where it was found was very convenient to the person who was telling it. It has to do with um, papal properties and private property in, in the city of Rome in the 19th century. You don't need to go into those details, but the The part of the story that was so astonishing to me was that this piece of information that had been repeated constantly actually had no foundation it, it was not a fact wow. it was um it was kind of a convention that through repetition had congealed sure. into something that had the status of fact but in fact was not uh, reliable at all and I had been on the verge of building a whole interpretation of this statue based on that reported fine spot the fact that it was from a military ancient Roman military context was central to my understanding of it so it was really um a moment where it felt like the had been pulled out from under me. And it really got me thinking critically about my whole discipline uh, and like how much else in the history of Roman art is more a matter of convention and repetition rather than reliable fact. And so I ended up not writing the book I thought I was going to write. I never turned my dissertation into a book. I was supposed to write a book about imperial monuments from the reign of Constantine. And instead, I wrote a book called Shaky Ground Uh about the kind of unstable foundations of the whole discipline of Roman art history and really calling on fellow scholars to pay more attention to these kinds of epistemological questions. So – my book that I published in 2013 was really about how scholars have used information about the ancient world and, and um, you know, urging more critical thinking about the sources of, of things we think are true. So the, the book was really about this address to the scholarly community. But while I was writing it, I became increasingly interested in the role that museums were playing in passing these stories along – Um, And also I became interested in the ways in which a lot of these conventional stories serve museum interests because so many of the objects that end up in museums um, were removed from their original context in the ground under circumstances that may not have been entirely legal at the time or may have been unethical at the time or may have been questionable at the time – But very often, these conventional narratives about the past history of these statues um, was very convenient to the museums. It it served the museum's interests. So I began digging into that relationship, kind of the the history of what we know about ancient objects and the interests of the modern holders of them. So that's what put me on this different path.
0: That's super cool. Um, In your work and looking through all of that – do you feel like this is something that is incredibly widespread? Is this an is this a problem at like every museum?
1: Um it, it's a it's a problem at most museums in countries where the objects are um imported from far away. Well, let me pause and say I'm talking about Um, My area of expertise here, which is ancient Mediterranean objects, so I'm not talking about, for example, Native American objects, which have a whole different um, and in many ways even more troubling and violent history than the histories I'm talking about. Um, Certainly in European and North American museums, many of the antiquities that ended up here, many of the Greek and Roman antiquities that ended up in our museum collections came here through – means that are, yes, problematic in one way or another. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Uh, And museums have been reluctant, broadly speaking, with some exceptions. Museums have been reluctant to really dig into these stories because the more they know – the more there will be an obligation to do something about it. So, mm. in many ways, the you know, the, the erasure of these stories, the, the ways these stories have been forgotten, is what makes it possible for museums to continue to exist in in the way that we currently think of them.
0: So I'm gonna to get to some of the more recent things that have come up, particularly at the Met. Um, but I'm curious as to when the museum world Started to first grapple with these big questions, like when they were all of a sudden, you know, they weren't going out and finding these things or sending expeditions out? And and when did they start thinking that, oh, maybe these things on display shouldn't be here?
1: That's a really good question. And there's – it's sort of a a kind of gradual shift in the kind of general consensus around these issues – um, you know, sort of the 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 most hardline stance on this. Um, hardline is not the right word. Let me rephrase that. The initial um, moment when this issue came to broad public attention was in 1970, when UNESCO passed a convention that called upon everyone who signed on to it to respect each other's cultural property laws. So that meant if Turkey has declared that all of the antiquities found in its soil are the property of the Turkish state. That means that other countries cannot import Turkish antiquities. So it was an interesting way of making Turkish laws relevant to other countries, right? Other countries have to pay attention to what Turkey has declared legal and illegal, So the the UNESCO convention, right, where these countries agree to respect each other each other's cultural property laws and not to import each other's cultural property. Yeah.
0: What is UNESCO?
1: Uh, UNESCO is the United Nations. Oh boy, United Nations, Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. We better better look that up. Uh, yes, it's, so it's a branch of the United Nations. So it's a it's an international organization uh, that called upon signatories to this convention to respect each other's cultural property laws. And the reason that convention was passed is that already by 1970. At least among some communities, there was a clear understanding that the art market was incentivizing the looting and destruction of archaeological sites, that it was depriving countries of objects they considered essential to their heritage, to their history, to their identity. Um, So already in 1970, there was widespread awareness of this. That said, most of the museums, most of the world's Museums and collectors and art dealers still believed that while, yes, that is true, at the same time, there's another way of thinking about these objects, which is that they transcend national boundaries, they transcend the communities that created them. These are the heritage of humanity, uh, and that it's very valuable for understanding of the world's different communities and histories. For these objects to travel, there's there's something, you know, intrinsically good about seeing an ancient Turkish object in Los Angeles or Montreal or Paris, right, that that creates a kind of global citizenship. So there was a whole alternative way of understanding museum collections that was very much in tension with the values enshrined in the 1970 UNESCO Convention. And so for really about 30 years, kind of these two, what we might call discursive systems, I mean, these two ways of understanding ancient artworks existed simultaneously, very much in tension with each other. There was a lot of friction in those years between the collecting community and what we might call the heritage community, the archaeological community. Um, And... There, there was a kind of stasis. Um, most museums didn't stop their acquisition policies; didn't change their acquisition policies despite the UNESCO convention. As long as there wasn't clear proof that an object had been recently looted, most museums were happy to acquire it. Uh, and then things really start to turn, particularly around the time of the Iraq War, when the world witnessed the. Looting of the Baghdad Museum and came to understand that the reason that had happened is because there is a rich art market for stolen objects. It was really kind of the first time that that was made visible on a global scale. And there were horrific images of overturned museum cases and smashed objects on the ground. And that was really the beginning of a shift in public opinion. Mm-hmm. On these issues, so over the course of the 2000s, there was a, there were a lot of headlines in the newspapers. There were also some stories about international looting networks coming out of Italy at the time. Uh, a number of museums were quite publicly shamed for having acquired looted objects. The Getty, the Metropolitan Museum, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston had to return objects in ways that uh, really damaged their public image and their reputation as, you know, these kind of bastions of civic good. So uh, that's really when things began to change. And in 2008, the umbrella organizations that uh, kind of oversee museum policies in the United States said, from this point forward, we should not be acquiring anything that we can't prove left its country of origin prior to the UNESCO convention. So 1970 became a kind of line in the sand. And since then, most museums have stopped acquiring things. Uh, The question is still what they do with things that they acquired during that interim period between 1970 and 2008. And uh, yeah, so many questions remain. But that's sort of the history of the slowly shifting public attitudes around
0: this. So interesting. And it leads me to another question. And I I get the the line in the sand in 1970 makes a lot of sense. So like moving forward, we're going to try and figure this out, maybe because it gets too messy before that. I'm curious about places like Turkey or other areas where the objects that they may have were they looted during antiquity from another culture? Like you think of Rome, right? I mean, it was everywhere, and they were looting all over the place, right? Uh, yes. So, does does Italy get to claim that stuff because they took it way back when, or how does that work in the museum world?
1: That's a great question, and it's a criticism that has been, you know, voiced by by various um, people who, yeah, who st- who still want to advocate for the kind of free movement of these objects. And it's absolutely the case that. Um, many of the things that ended up in Italy did not originate in Italy, right? The Romans were the sort of famous plunderers sure. of the ancient world, but they weren't the first plunderers, right? right? I mean, the various um, Assyrian rulers loved to plunder each other's monuments. Uh, so yeah, objects objects very often follow power, right? Wow. This has been a this has been a move of. Of powerful people throughout history, if you can take somebody else's nice stuff, uh, whether that's because you enjoy it or because your possession of it is a way of publicly demonstrating your power, this is something that has happened very frequently. Uh, so, yeah, that's a that's an interesting criticism of the kind of prevailing wisdom that that we shouldn't be moving things around. Right? Mm. In fact, things have always moved around.
0: What does Un- So what does UNESCO, um, I guess, give a stamp of approval when it comes to provenance? Like what is acceptable and how do museums manage that? Like how do they know that the history of the object that they're getting is true?
1: That is a great question. What UNESCO asks for – Uh, At the kind of most basic level is an export license. So if you have an export license, that means somebody in the government of the country of origin has deemed that this object can leave the borders of the country, right? It's allowed to be exported. Um, and whether countries are or aren't willing to issue export licenses is a really interesting question. Israel um, is one of the, one of the few countries that has had a kind of legal system in place that allows for the uh, exportation of antiquities found within its territory. Um, although there's been a kind of whole whole history of misuses of that system, where like the same export license gate use gets used to to you know allow a number of objects to leave, for example. Um, but, um, yeah, lost the thread of your question. What are they looking for? Yes. so so export license and export license is kind of one way of answering that question. Another way to answer that question would be proof that the object was out of its country of origin prior to 1970. So if you have um, you know if, if the object was published in a catalog, okay and the catalog was published in 1962, and it shows this object already in the holdings of the you know, Dallas Museum of Fine Arts, then that would be proof that it was already out well before 1970. The, the problem with the 1970 line in the sand, and I, I do think it's important that um, to to have this perspective on the table as well, is that most of the source countries, most of the countries in the Mediterranean that I that I look at, most of those countries had already passed their own laws long before 1970. Mm-hmm. Right? They they already had their own systems in place, saying that they wanted to control the cultural heritage uh, within their borders and under their soil. Uh, the problem with the UNESCO legislation is that it says never mind your laws, what's going to matter from this point forward is this UNESCO convention, right? So so 1970 uh, is the policy that UNESCO puts in place, but it's it's very much a kind of trampling of the sovereign laws and rights of the countries themselves, uh, right? For us to say that what matters is UNESCO's date and not the date of the country that the peace came from is uh, has been seen by many as as uh, you know kind of form of colonialism in a in in a new form in a new guise. So there are a number of people who have suggested that uh, we shouldn't really be paying to that paying attention to that UNESCO line in the sand. We should do more work to try to figure out the specific country that the object came from and the date when the object was exported, and whether that date is before or after that country had already put its own laws on the books. That's obviously even more research, right? <laughs> and, and not every art dealer is going to do that level of due diligence before they sell something.
0: And is there some kind of teeth to the UNESCO rule? So like, who enforces that? Is there some kind of you know, global art police that I don't know about. Uh,
1: there are some. There are some organizations. There's um, there's Interpol that is working uh, within a European context. Um, traditionally, in the United States, there hasn't been much legal enforcement of these of these codes. Sometimes there have been moments where. Um, people have gotten in serious legal trouble when it can be proved that they lied on their customs uh, forms right okay. so if they describe something as a tourist trinket for example or or just you know don't declare it customs the fact that they Rocks. have yes 1000 yeah. <laughs> year old iraqi Seal stones, for example, in this shipment. Um, That was how Hobby Lobby got into trouble. So there have been a – yeah, Hobby Lobby was – Oh, well, we're going to have to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) There have been a a handful of people who have actually been prosecuted and and, um, had to serve prison sentences um, for customs violations. Recently, what has started to happen is that there's a very proactive – district attorney right now in Manhattan. There's a whole antiquities trafficking unit that's part of the district attorney's office um, headed by someone named Matthew Bogdanos, who was on the ground in Baghdad uh, and was kind of very close to the um to what happened there at the looting of the Baghdad Museum. And I think in many ways that has motivated him to kind of make this his life's work. Um, so the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has been very aggressively pursuing cases where we know that antiquities were trafficked somewhere in Manhattan, right? If it if it falls within that okay. if if it if it if it changed hands in Manhattan, then it's in his jurisdiction and he can go after that. Piece, So that has led to uh, a a real resurgence in uh, attention to these issues by
0: law enforcement in recent years. I think we'll go down that path. So in 2019, you wrote an opinion piece for the art newspaper titled, The Met's Antiquated Views of Antiquities Need Updating. And in that commentary, you said... The Metropolitan Museum of Art's search for a permanent curator in charge of the Greek and Roman department is a rare opportunity for this institution to reverse decades of bad policy and bad press. With bold new leadership, the department can prove that it has learned from past mistakes and offer the public a more honest and dynamic story of classical art. So that's in 2019, and you fast forward to March of 2023, and the New York Times reports on a seven-foot-tall bronze statue of Septimus Severus, valued at about $25 million, seized from the Met as a looted artifact. And then there's more to that story after the fact. But I mean, we'll start there. So I guess did the Met not learn when you first uh, talked about <laughs> that? Like what happened?
1: Um, yeah. I You know, I don't want to uh, – I don't want to – diss my colleagues, but I will say, yeah, I, I think, don't think the Met really followed the advice I offered. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't really ask for my advice. I offered it from the outside. They ended up hiring someone from within. Um, so there wasn't a radical sea change uh, in policy at, at the Metropolitan at the moment of that transition of who was, um, who was in charge of that Greek and Roman gallery. Um, one of the things that had long bothered me at the Metropolitan Museum, and this seems like a very small thing, but I was very focused on one label in the galleries that had been bothering me for close to a decade. It was a label on this statue of Septimius Severus that you mention, um, it was a statue that is very well known to scholars in my field, right, which I recognize is a teeny, teeny, <laughs> tiny subset of the larger population. And I think that that's very much what the museum was, was kind of mm. counting on, right, was that 99.9% of visitors will not know the real story of that statue, which is that it's looting in Turkey— In 1967, and notice that that's three years before Mm -hmm. the UNESCO Accord, which comes into this. Uh, But the looting of that statue was quite well documented. It was part of a group, an astonishing trove of bronze statues that was discovered by accident by the people living in a very remote rural village in southwestern Turkey. They discovered a dozen, maybe as many as 20 life-size bronze statues, uh, which is an extremely rare and precious category of ancient art because most bronze objects were melted down over the centuries. Uh, it was one of these sta- one of the statues from that trove that were all illegally smuggled out of Turkey uh, into Europe, probably through Switzerland, uh, and then slowly made their way onto the international art market. And an- a large number of them ended up uh, first in private hands in the United States, and then many of them ended up in public museum collections. The one at the Metropolitan was actually not owned by the Met; it was on loan to the Met uh, by an anonymous lender.
0: Yeah, how does that work? How do you get an anonymous lender? Mm, yeah, well, so nobody the, knows this person. The Met
1: knows who yeah. the person is, but the person has asked to remain anonymous, and that's a very problematic behavior. On museums' part to take these anonymous loans because as long as they don't acquire the piece, it, it's a way for the museum mm. to display things that fall far outside the legal parameters that would govern their actual acquisition. So yeah, the the whole category of anonymous loans we could we could talk about that for an hour, <laughs> uh, but anyway, the label on this statue, which was on loan to the Met, referred to this act of looting in. Turkey at this site called Bubon only to say, well, we used to think it was looted from that site. But in fact, recent evidence suggests that it wasn't looted from that site. This head that this statue is thought to go with that's now in a museum in Copenhagen, that thing was from that site, but we have no idea where this statue came from. This statue could be anything. And then the label went on and said it could be Greek, it could be Roman, it could be an emperor, it could be a god. We have no idea what this thing is. And that just wasn't true. We do know what this is. We know that this is a statue of the Roman emperor from the second century, that it comes from this very particular site. So I was um really offended by this label. It was really troubling to me that a museum would deny historical information on its label i mean it was like a like a textbook example oh. of gaslighting oh. right like something we all know is true and how do museum. you know
0: like to, how do you how are you so sure yeah, of t- the history of that So piece?
1: so this um the this corpus of looted statues had been published several times earlier there there had been a turkish archaeologist who'd been all over this story from the very beginning who'd worked tirelessly over the course of her life to bring public attention to this to yeah to 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 try to get these statues Statues back to Turkey there was a curator uh, at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston who'd been kind of central to the story of the of the these statues in the United States who'd also published uh, a list of them so so which statues belong to this group um, or at least the core statues that belonged to this group had been well documented um, if you knew the scholarly literature gotcha. a big portion of which was in German right <laughs> so it's also you know a, a not easily accessible to a general audience. But still, there are, you know, in 2013, there were probably, I don't know, 500 people in the United States who would have seen that statue on display in the Met, read that label, and known that that label was full of lies. And that was very distressing to me that a public institution, a, a beautiful museum, a museum I love that I spent you know, I've probably spent hundreds of hours in over the course of my life. That that it would so profoundly betray its own educational mission and its own claims about what it is offering to the public was really troubling to me. So, uh, in yeah, so in 2019, I wrote that piece in the Art Newspaper that was sort of a broad call to the Metropolitan Museum that it's time for new leadership. And then in um, 2022, I wrote another piece for a general audience that was published in Hyperallergic, Mm -hmm. where I really focused on that label and the story of this one act of looting and all the museums now that had pieces from this site in Turkey and what they do and don't admit in their labels. And in the context of that article, I included hyperlinks to all the museums that have these pieces today. Uh, and that made it very easy to, you know, anyone with an internet link could uh, look at these statues, could now read the story of the looting at Bubon. You know, this wasn't really original research. I want to underscore that I was just making public sure. uh, what had been out there and known to scholars, but I was making it available to a general audience. Um, and that piece attracted a lot of attention Uh uh I had also been talking to folks in the district attorney's office yes. already about other stuff but you know had sort of been poking them like hey why don't you have a look at the phoen <laughs> statues from Turkey uh and then the Turkish Ministry of Culture uh was interested as well so that um yeah it led to an intensified focus on that corpus of statues and since I published that piece now several of the um several of the pieces have been seized by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, some of them are, have already been returned to Turkey. Others are on their way back. So, yeah, that ha- so that statue whose label bothered me so much at the Metropolitan, that statue is now
0: back in Turkey. Now, you assisted the Manhattan DA's office in that investigation, right? They, they cited you, right? They in did, the, yes. In their, yeah. In their work. yeah, yeah. So tell me, how did that work? Uh, how did you get in touch? And what did you do to help them?
1: So I had worked with them on a previous case, uh, a very... Bizarre story of a of a dealer in also in Manhattan who was selling forgeries. Um, they brought me in to be an expert witness simply to say, yes, these absolutely are forgeries. Uh, so I I had assisted on that case and gotten to know um, some of the folks in the district attorney's office at that moment. And in the course of those conversations, that was when I first said to them, like, hey, this guy's selling fakes. Like, that's really interesting. But how about we talk about these Turkish statues? Um, and they were already interested in the case. Um, but, you know, they have – there's a whole – there's many, many things that they are interested in. But I – I think I played a small part in persuading them that this should rise to a higher level of priority. So I shared with them all of my research that I had been compiling. I had put together a huge database with all of the pieces that had ever been associated with Bubon, where they are now. Bubon is the name of the site in Turkey. All the pieces that had been associated, sort of every time they had appeared on the market, I had photocopies and hyperlinks to all of that, and I had it. You know, well organized in an Excel spreadsheet. So I shared my spreadsheet with them. Uh-huh. I also shared all my PDFs of all the scholarly articles. So yeah, I I you know saved them some time really doing all of that background research, and then remained in touch with them um, for much of the period when they were when they were doing their investigation. Although their investigation has has really moved forward in all kinds of ways that I haven't been privy to. They've been working with Turkish law enforcement. Um, so they have lots of new evidence that that I don't have access to yet. That I'm oh. hoping will become available soon to, to a, the public.
0: Of the, all of those sculptures that were found at Buban, do we know where all of them are?
1: Not all of them. Some of them were sold on the market to private collectors mm-hmm. and have not resurfaced, at least not publicly. There's one that I think is truly lost. Like as, as far as I know, uh, I don't even think anyone in the district attorney's office knows where it is. It's the only female figure from the group. It was trafficked uh, through a dealer named Jerome Eisenberg. And it was actually one of the most recently sold pieces. He It was listed in his catalog uh, in 2006 – he was sending out um, kind of advertising pamphlets about it as late as 2008. I have a copy of one of those somebody shared with me. Somebody bought it in 2008, and we don't know where it is today. So, yeah, that's, a, that's you know one of the tragedies of this story is that this very important ancient ensemble may never be mm-hmm. able to be reconstituted because some of the pieces have have, have dispersed and disappeared to locations – we don't know about. Oh,
0: mystery. Uh, and then, uh, so that was in March. And then in July, all of a sudden, a longtime Met trustee is uh, basically, um, she is, I don't know, the, the investigator seized 71 artifacts that they said were looted from her personal collection? Yes. how? <laughs> what's the story there? <laughs> like.
1: Yeah. So I will say uh, they seized the they seized a lot of objects from her in July. Already the previous fall in November they seized one of the Boubon statues oh. from her. So she had. I mean, this is this gives you some idea of you know sort of the what passes for normal <laughs> among extremely wealthy Manhattan collectors. She had an eight foot tall bronze statue of a new Roman emperor, like in her entryway in her apartment. She's she's um, one of the biggest antiquities collectors in the U.S. She and her husband, Shelby White and Leon Levy, he's no longer alive. Um, they were very generous benefactors of the Metropolitan Museum. She's, I believe, still on the board of trustees there. The Met has recently put together a committee that's going to systematically review the provenance histories of objects in its collection. And so far, the only member of that new committee whose identity has been revealed publicly is Shelby White. Wow. (laughs) So that's uh, maybe complicated. Yeah. yeah. Um, You know, the Fox has been asked to like,
0: you know,
1: be uh, in charge of the safety of the hen house kind of thing. There's no
0: ethics rules for board members or? Uh,
1: uh, No, no. I mean, board members, board members write the checks, right? They keep the institution going. And that, you know, that is a a larger question about how cultural institutions are funded in this country, right? Museums have to rely on whoever's willing to step up and foot the bill. I mean, the interesting thing about Shelby White is that she's a good example of someone who feels that the rules have changed, right? That the ground has kind of shifted under her feet in ways that I'm sure she perceives as unfair and she's a she's a loud voice for that and is maybe an extreme case of this. But it, it is important to recognize here that this there really has been a dramatic shift in how the public—and, of course, the public is not a monolithic thing—but I think the balance of public opinion has really shifted in the last 30 or 40 years. And people like Shelby White and Leon Levy, when they began collecting antiquities— I think are i I believe them they are sincere when they say they they did it because they love the ancient world they want to share sure. the beauty of the ancient world with with audiences. they thought that what they were doing was was noble and good and beneficial. Uh, the idea that it was, you know, harmful to our understanding of the historical past—that's a relatively recent way of understanding antiquities collecting. So, you know, I, I think it's important to understand the complexities around these issues. That, and and I also think that Shelby White. Uh, has stopped acquiring new antiquities right mm. she she had an earlier moment where she got into trouble around a number of the objects in her collection. She returned I think a dozen pieces or so to Italy. I don't think she has uh, acquired more recently, but you know the more we the more officials look into what was already in her collection, the more problems are being discovered. so that's why she continues to reappear in newspapers.
0: I'm also curious about – I was reading this article um, about these fragments at the Met. Um, This cup, the Kylix cup, Mm -hmm. is that –
1: can you tell me a little bit about that? So that's a really interesting story that a number of scholars have been working on from different angles. The the, the evidence on the ground that people are trying to make sense of is that there have been many instances over the last, say, 40 or 50 years – where very beautifully painted Greek vases, the type that ancient Etruscans, ancient Italians loved to acquire, so much so that most of the Greek vases that we have actually come from Italian tombs. We have more of them from Italy than we have from Greece. <laughs> uh, and have been these objects have been protected by Italian cultural patrimony laws for more than a century. Uh, many fragments... ...of these vases, right? They're made of ceramics, so they break easily, but the painting on them, on the surface, is often very well preserved. Fragments of a single vase have surfaced, right, have shown up in the collections of a whole bunch of different American museums, the same vase, right? Mm. So there'll be a fragment of it at the Getty and a fragment of it at the Metropolitan and a fragment of it at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Uh, and then, amazingly, some brilliant curator often um, – well, yeah, many of the many of the participants in this story uh, have the moment of glory of like miraculously discovering that these fragments connect with one another – And so the museums will swap them around and the whole vase will be reconstituted like a kind of phoenix rising from the ashes, right? So out of what looked like just a bunch of broken pottery fragments of the type of object that you can get pretty easily through customs, all of a sudden we'll have a complete vase, the type of object one couldn't easily Mm. get through customs. So there is a real question How do these objects end up in fragments? How do the fragments end up in all these different museum collections? How is it possible that someone keeps being able to connect the dots out of the tens of thousands of vase fragments that are out there, right? The suspicion is that these vases are being somehow deliberately broken up and smuggled piece by piece, handed to a small number of curators who are all somehow in on the jig. Uh, and then, you know, 10 years later, when sort of everybody's forgotten about the details about how these objects entered their collection, then the vases are reconstituted out of the fragments. There's um, there's a lot of smoking guns. I don't quite think the story has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt yet that that's actually what's going on. But there are a number of scholars who are very actively working on this. Um, I have always been troubled by the, you know, I I think the one detail of this that really does um, resonate with me is that, you know, the we have this picture of the sort of genius scholar alone in his study who's able to, like, you know, who, who has a photographic memory, right? His brain is like an archive. He can remember and recall every single one of the 10,000 vase fragments he's seen in his whole life. And when he sees a new one in you know, the basement at the Ashmolean, he's able to look at it and say, ah, that matches up to the fragment I saw 25 years ago in the basement of the Houston Museum of Fine Arts. And sure enough, they connect up with one another. I have always been skeptical (laughs) of those (laughs) kinds of stories. So the possibility that this was not just the brilliance of the lone genius, almost inevitably male curator, but that this was, in fact, some kind of conspiracy Mm. to smuggle looted antiquities out of their countries of origin, to me, that seems more plausible. Wow.
0: Yeah. I think you're probably right.
1: (laughs) Well, time will tell. Time will tell. That's scholarship that my colleagues are working on.
0: Tell me about ways that you think um, museums or maybe even colleges and universities can help, um, I guess, move forward and um, verify some of the the questionable artifacts that are out there and maybe help with some educational components related to them.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. One of the consequences of the new museum guidelines that were put in place in 2008 that said, museums should only acquire objects that have clear proof that they left their country of origin prior to 1970, one of the consequences of that policy is that there are literally hundreds of thousands of antiquities in private collections in the U.S. that don't meet that criterion, that shouldn't have been purchased given the UNESCO legislation, but that were purchased all the same. Objects whose importation into the United States almost certainly violated the export laws of their country of origin, right? So objects that are clearly in violation of the UNESCO policies. What do we do with those objects today? What is going to happen to them? Some of them are perhaps of such um, historical or artistic significance that the country of origin would want them back and they should be repatriated, but there are many, many, many of them that don't rise to that level of cultural or artistic significance, right? They're, they're small kind of battered marble portrait heads or they are fragments of vases, right? There's, there's many, many, many antiquities out there that the countries of origin are not looking to get back, that are in private hands in the U.S., that American museums aren't willing to accept anymore— And they're languishing in these private collections, and it's not clear what's going to happen to them. I've heard some real horror stories about collectors um, who are not able to make arrangements for the future care of these objects before they pass away, and their children inherit them. And their children have no interest in this, and the children see this as a big headache. Uh, It's potentially illegal. We don't want these objects. We live in a small apartment. We don't (laughs) want mom and dad's, like, you know, sculpture collection of, like, little fragments and things like that. And the kids throw them away. Oh, man. Yeah. I have heard one story of that actually happening. So that's obviously no good. It's also no good for the pieces to return to the art market because then they just— continue to fuel the art market, right, and and kind of legitimize all of these practices that we've said are no good. So I have thought for many years that the best way to handle these collections would be for them to go to institutions that want to do deep provenance research, that really want to dig into the histories of where these came from, when they were acquired, what they meant to the modern collectors who owned them, what else was in the collection, how they were used uh, in in their recent history, uh, and then figure out if they should be repatriated, if they should go on display with labels that talk about looting, if any of these objects are potentially forgeries. That's also super interesting. Uh, and I think in many instances that university museums are the type of institution that are going to be more interested in doing that kind of research and telling those kinds of not very beautiful, glamorous stories, right? Sure. So um, I have been advocating for many years for the uh, those umbrella museum organizations to create some kind of mechanism whereby... University museums could accept donations of these problematic antiquities collections provided that they're willing to do the deep research on provenance, provided that they're willing to repatriate anything that should be repatriated and that is wanted by the source country, and provided that those institutions already have a kind of track record of paying attention to these issues, of caring about these issues – um, and wanting to use a collection like this to educate their students and the public around the problems of the
0: antiquities market, it seems like a tremendous educational opportunity, and you have all these students that are here and like ready to do the work I say here as in universities in general um what's standing in the way like why why do you think or has there been hesitancy in adopting something like that because those objects, like you said aren't they're not going away unless somebody throws them out. Nobody wants to see that.
1: Yes. Um, yes. It would not be an understatement to say that there has been quite a bit of pushback uh, uh, on this policy. And and I understand where critics are coming from. It took organizations like the Archaeological Institute of America decades to persuade museums to draw that line in the sand and to actually stop acquiring objects that don't meet the UNESCO threshold And there's a concern that what I am advocating for is a kind of weakening of that strong line in the sand, right? Suddenly, those objects will be able to be donated. And if they're donated, the collectors who donate them, at least under our current guidelines, will get a nice big fat tax write-off for doing it, right? And those tax write-offs are a way of rewarding collectors potentially for having acquired looted objects and now donating these things that were, you know, arguably illegal. Uh, So people argue we shouldn't be using public funds to reward collectors who bought stolen goods, right? That's that's not an unreasonable position. I don't know how to solve the tax problem. If there were some way that we could say collectors can donate these objects to university museums, provided that they don't. Claim it on their taxes and try to get a tax benefit from that, but I don't think there's a <laughs> legal mechanism for enforcing that, uh, and that's you know way outside my area of expertise. So there, I, I understand the criticism that this is seen as a weakening of that of the that new rigor around the UNESCO accord, um, and I've also heard my colleagues say that. It's more important to try to prevent future looting than it is to take care of already looted objects. That's a viewpoint I don't share. uh, But they really think that this strict line in the sand will ultimately help reduce the incidence of looting in the future – um, that is, if collectors know they aren't going to be able to donate these objects, maybe they'll stop buying them. And if collectors stop buying them, that will disincentivize the looters at the other end of the story. So we'll actually have um, less looting, right? That's, that's the hope behind um, these firm policies. So if you think of it in those terms, I am valuing the care of these already looted objects, perhaps over um, the possibility that we will reduce future incidents of looting. I'm not sure I totally buy that argument. I also feel that we do have a duty of care to these objects that are already out of the ground uh, and that we should be researching them and trying to learn everything we can about where they came from and the circumstances of their exportation, We should be learning about what scholars sometimes refer to as their object biography or the itineraries that they have taken over the course of their modern life because that tells us a lot about the history of collecting and the history of how we value ancient artifacts. So – yeah, I'm at, at, at. There's a little bit of um, a, a standoff now between me and uh, my colleagues at the, particularly at the Archaeological Institute of America. We're continuing to have conversations about this. It's a, it's an agree to disagree kind <laughs> of situation. But in the meantime, the status quo prevails, and university museums cannot accept, or uh, the university museums that follow these guidelines will will not accept a donated collection of unprovenanced antiquities right now.
0: What advice would you give to someone who is interested in collecting these types of objects, right? Like how can they be sure that they're doing it properly without, you know, buying looted artifact? Like how do they know?
1: Um, I think the simplest advice I would give them would be to find something else to collect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid do there isn't really um, I mean, so so according to current policy, the answer, you know, the right answer to your question is make sure there's clear evidence that anything you buy was out of its country of origin prior to 1970 at a minimum, but maybe do even more research and figure out which country it came from in particular, and when exactly it was exported, and make sure that its exportation didn't violate the laws that that country had on the books at the time. That's a lot of research and a lot of data to acquire that is often very, very difficult to acquire. And it's often difficult to acquire for not nefarious reasons, right? How many of us would be able to Produce a receipt for a beautiful object we inherited from our grandparents, right? How many of us keep?
0: I have a hard time finding ones for my expense report there for lunch you go, or something.
1: Right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, so it's often very difficult to prove that something left. Difficult to prove when something left its country of origin, right? That it's really the exception that we have that amount of paperwork rather than the rule, um, and. That's just the reality of human behavior in terms of what we do keep and what we don't keep. And the consequence of that is that there's there are very few antiquities on the market today that one could acquire with absolute confidence that this will never be requested by the country of origin or that will never be looked at in the future as something that was improperly obtained. So, unless you're willing to take those kinds of risks, I would advise would be collectors to develop an interest in prints or <laughs> something else that can be acquired with less risk.
0: Are there any museums that you feel like are really getting it right these days or, you know, maybe they had a difficult past and they've kind of rectified things or they've moved forward and like it's a a museum you feel good about seeing what, what they have on display.
1: I think the museum that is doing this the best of all the museums that I have visited is a museum abroad in Manchester, hmm. in the UK, where they are very eager to tell the stories of how pieces entered their collection. They realize that it's not just the ancient histories of the objects that are worth telling, but also the modern histories of the objects. So they have, for example, a group of um, bronze, small bronze objects on display where the label says, we think these came from a particular location, but because we don't really know anything about where they came out of the ground, they can't tell us very much about the ancient world, mm-hmm. right? So the label really draws attention both to what we guess – might be the case, but also the limits of our knowledge. Um, There's also a display- Is that called
0: University of Manchester? Or uh, not University, I'm sorry, the Museum of Manchester?
1: Yes. I think it's just called the Manchester Museum, but it's associated with the University of Manchester. Uh, There's also a display I really like. There's a number of really interesting displays at the Field Museum in Chicago, Um, where they have cases where they display forgeries and say, when these were acquired by the museum, we thought these were authentic, and today we know that we got it wrong in the past. I think those telling those kinds of stories are really important to the public. They have another exhibit at the Field Museum uh, where they encourage you to find the graffiti that have been left on Uh, the blocks from an ancient Egyptian tomb, and it talks about the fact that fragments of this tomb have ended up in museums all over the United States, and it really presents that as um, something that the museum invites you to think about, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, right, that the objects from a single monument would be both defaced by travelers over the century and then ultimately dispersed to a number of different institutions. So I think museums that are willing to tell these complicated stories are the ones I really tip my hat to these days. I I still think there's a very strong impulse for museums to try to pretend that everything is just hunky-dory about every object in their collection, Um, and that's not only not true, I think that's not the most interesting stories for the public to be learning.
0: Are there any books that you would suggest for people to read that are interested in the subject of, you know, this Looting and the museums, and um, just the the whole kind of area of um, I don't know trafficking in these antiquities.
1: That's a great question. I think probably still the best um, the best kind of single volume coverage of this is a book that came out at this point maybe a decade ago, um, by two reporters at the LA Times, Jason Felch and Ralph Framolino, called Chasing Aphrodite. And it's a deep dive into antiquities collecting at the Getty Museum.
0: We've reached question 13. All right. Now that Septimus Severus has, I guess, been repatriated?
1: Yes, he's uh, back uh, Returned in home? Yes.
0: Um, are there any particular objects in museums right now that you have your eye on, that you're like, that is something that shouldn't be there. That you've you've maybe similarly uh, had a focus on.
1: Yes, I mean the the one that immediately comes to mind is another piece from that group of statues from Turkey that is currently at the Cleveland Museum of Art. Ah. It has been seized in place by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which means they um, they haven't removed it yet from the museum um There are some indications that Cleveland is going to try to contest the story around its this statue's looting. Um, Cleveland has already done something that I'm very troubled by and I wrote another article for the art newspaper about this. This object has been on display in the museum since they acquired it in 1986, and the label has always, quite frankly, described it as a statue of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who's represented as a philosopher. He's the only Roman emperor who had himself represented in the guise of a philosopher. And if you looked at the catalog online that the the museum made available to the public, it used to talk quite explicitly about this site in Turkey, Bubon, where we think this statue came from. Uh, and it was very much kind of part of the story that the museum told, right, that this statue's an image of a Roman emperor in the guise of a philosopher. It's Marcus Aurelius. It's from this site in Turkey. Then the Manhattan district attorney showed up with evidence that was that the museum knew about very well. In fact, the museum's own curator in 1986 went to Bubon and wrote about the site in connection with their museum's piece. Uh, But when the Manhattan district attorney showed up and suggested that this statue also needed to be returned, Cleveland responded by going into their website and changing all the information. So now the website... um, does the same thing that that Met label used to do. It says, we have no idea what this is. It could be Greek. It could be Roman. Maybe it's an emperor. Maybe it's just a philosopher. Who knows? It could be from the 2nd century AD. It could be from the 2nd century BC. We have no idea. So again, it's a moment where a museum has behaved in a way that suggests it would rather erase historical knowledge than return an artwork that it acquired contrary to laws and ethics. So that is a piece I'm very troubled by. Uh, I really hope that the Cleveland Museum is going to sort of sit down and think carefully about what its mission is, what its obligations to the public are, um, and make the right decision rather than dragging this out and, and, you know, questioning whether the Manhattan DA has legal jurisdiction and, you know, turning this into a, a legal matter. Um, it's possible the legal issues may be gray, but the ethical issues are not.
0: So, yeah, waiting to see how that case is going to go. Professor Marlowe, thank you so much for joining us on 13 today. I really appreciate it. Thanks
1: so much for having me, Dan. It's been fun to talk with you about these issues.
0: All right. Uh, To hear a little bit more about what's going on at Colgate, you can always check out colgate.edu, Colgate Magazine, and Colgate Research Magazine for more information about other research going on on campus. Uh, If you have any questions, feel free to email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive Producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events L. Hazel Jack, Producer and host, Dan DeVries, and audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com.